Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday afternoon, and we are back on our regular schedule, which means today is Draft Deep Dives Day. So I'm here, of course, with my co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine Tuesday afternoon? Nick, I'm fantastic. Overwhelmed by life, but it's tournament time. It feels like the season started yesterday. Uh, It's wild that we're already here, but I'm so excited um, for the tournament and especially the guy we're about to talk about. Good people of the NBA Deep Dives podcast audience, good people of the Draft Deep Dives podcast audience, good people of the hashtag basketball audience, of the No Ceilings NBA (laughs) audience. This is a moment that we have long been waiting for, and it is finally here, the Osha Agbaji episode. Tyler, for your most recent article over at No Ceilings NBA, you wrote about Osha Agbaji's off-ball scoring. We have been talking about Oshai Baji in this space for quite a while now, as that intro might have indicated to our newer listeners. So let's just start off by going into his off-ball scoring, as you talked about in that article. We've certainly said quite a few words on Oshai already, and we're going to say many more before this podcast concludes. But let's just start with the subject of that particular article. What are your thoughts on what Oshai can do scoring-wise without the ball in his hands? Pretty much whatever he wants. Um, And it's a real testament to his work ethic and how his game has really matured and developed and evolved over the years. Because when he was a freshman and first stepped on the floor, uh, you and I were both fans of his right away, but for very different reasons than we are now. And as a freshman, he was just this freak athlete who was just pure chaos and energy, who was diving for a dozen loose balls a game and hounding people full court on defense. But he didn't really have a reliable shot. He wasn't all that skilled with the ball. The The offense was a huge question mark. And now he's really developed and changed his game over the years to not just become a good kind of well-rounded basketball player, but an elite scorer and an elite off-ball scorer. So the fact that he's transformed so much in just such a short period of time is really encouraging not only for you know who who he is now as a player but what he could continue to grow into you know three four or five years down the line so just a rundown of a few quick numbers that i think are relevant for this particular discussion his freshman year oshai averaged eight and a half points a game 45 percent from the field and 31 percent from deep on just over three times per game 3.4 attempts per game from deep Then his sophomore season, 10 points a game, 43% from the field, 34% from three. His junior year, 14 points, 42% from the floor, and 38% from three, but gone up from four and a half attempts from deep as a sophomore to almost seven attempts per game in his junior year. And then this year, of course, 19.7 points per game, 48% from the field, 41% from three-point range, and also up from 69% the year before to 77% from the free-throw line. So, you know, as the partial free-throw through through here, I kind of had to bring that up. But the reason that I went through those scoring totals and rundowns before we even started here is that what you're talking about in the article is just how good he is as an off-ball scorer, right? Mm -hmm. You know, how good he is when someone else has the ball in his hands and he can spot up from deep, or he is one of the best cutters in the country. And that's something that we've seen really since his freshman year. But I bring that up mainly because he's shown this year that he can be a much more consistent scorer. He can take on a much larger role in a team's offense than he ever had before. And yet he's so good 
as an off-ball guy, that it's hard not to have faith in him as an NBA player, even if he's playing in a much smaller role on the offensive end. You know, he's gotten to the point where he's much more consistent. His three-point shot, even though he had a bit of a dip down the stretch run of the season, is still an elite three-point shot. He's clearly proven that growth over the course of his four years in college. And it's fascinating to me because, you know, the main reason why he shot up draft boards this year is because he's proven that he can be a much more consistent contributor on the offensive end. And yet the most important part of his skill set is still, in my mind at least, you know, the skills that he had. Well, first of all, the skills he had during his freshman year as a defender and athlete, as you mentioned, but, you know, his ability to score without the ball in his hands is incredibly impressive. And that makes it a lot easier to sort of envision his fit in a wide variety of NBA roles, even though really his scoring has sort of blossomed this season with the ball in his hands as well. He's still so good at scoring off of other guys. Yeah. And so when, when I was drafting the article, um, you know, I, I, I had to keep it at a readable length for our audience. So I, I had to focus on a, a very, I'm sorry. Have you read skill. anything that Nathan's written? <laughs> Fair. But the the off ball scoring, I think, really jumped off the screen for me because obviously the numbers are astounding. Um, but I think it's also what he's most likely to be asked to do offensively in in the NBA, where even though his on ball stuff has really evolved and developed and taken huge leaps every single year during his time at Kansas, I don't think he's ever going to be asked to be that wing creator or that primary guy. And that's fine because the league is made up of role players. And I think Igbaji is one of the best role players that you can possibly find in this draft. And that, that that's a huge compliment. That's not a diminishment of his abilities or his role or what he will be as an NBA player at all. So just to kind of run through a few more numbers here, and these are Igbaji's kind of percentile scoring ranks on the season, overall 91st percentile, spot up 81st percentile, transition 82nd, Handoff, 90th. Cuts, 99th. Shooting off the catch, 88th percentile. And all shots around the basket in non-post-up situations, 97th percentile. So without the ball in his hands, he's so comfortable finding these open spaces and manipulating defenders' momentums, whether he's running off screens and he's either and he's deciding to either cut to the hoop or flare out to three, or if he's curling off a screen for a backdoor lob, there are just so many different ways that he can punish a defense reliably without the ball. And when you think about fitting him into a rotation with that skill set, he can pretty much go anywhere and make an immediate impact. Yeah, that I think is the biggest thing for me with his evaluation is it's impossible, honestly, for me to think of a team where he wouldn't fit because he just does so many things both with the ball and without the ball. But as you particularly highlighted without the ball, that there isn't really an environment where it doesn't make sense to sort of throw him in. And, you know, going back to the scoring numbers that I referenced as a freshman, you know, it's not like this is someone who was a superstar in high school and then came to college and averaged 23 points a game and did nothing else. Shout out Cam Thomas. It's someone who, has proven that they're willing to work in a smaller role at, you know, a big name program in Kansas. Right. But also someone who has grown so much as a scorer, just generally, not just as someone who really was an athlete and cutter and lob threat as a freshman, who's grown into such an incredible three point shooter. I mean, honestly, what team in the NBA couldn't use him? I can't, I can't think of one off the top of my head. And that's, you know, as you mentioned him being a role player, you don't want to draft that kind of player number one overall. You probably don't want to draft that kind of player number two overall. But once you get to like the eight to 14 range of the Mm -hmm. lottery, 
and you get to looking at everyone else versus a guy who you know is going to be a defensive weapon, who you know is going to be able to score without the ball in his hands, who you know is an incredible athlete with a proven body of work on the defensive end. I mean, there are so many players in that 8 to 14 range who just bust out of the league relatively quickly, whereas with Ibaji, it's hard to see him failing, especially given not just how good he's been this year, but also the work ethic that he's displayed and just how much his game has grown since his freshman year. And it's not like we didn't like his game as a freshman either, right? It's just that he's added so much to that. Yeah, his game now is just completely different than what it was three, four years ago um, because of that work that he's put in and the the developments that he's made. And I, I think a big reason for those developments too is he's been these last two years, he's been asked to play a role that I don't think really fits him a whole lot where when you watch a Kansas game, he's initiating a lot of the offense. He's running pick and roll, you know, almost 13% of his possessions this year, which, you know, I would be shocked if in the NBA that that number is over 10%, you know, that that's, it's a really drastic shift because Kansas hasn't had a reliable option at point guard offensively these last two seasons. So Igbaji has stepped up and taken on a lot of that role. That's where I think a lot of there, there are some concerning numbers with his deficiency shooting off the dribble, um, especially kind of in the mid range. But I think a lot of that is because he's being asked to play a role that he's not entirely suited for. And the fact that he's succeeded at such an immense level, despite, you know, having to take on responsibilities that he historically or hasn't had to, I think is a real testament to his character, his, you know, basketball ability and his overall basketball IQ and work rate. And the flip side of that, as we've talked about numerous times, mainly using Devin Booker and Zach Levine as the example, yeah. is yes. if you're an off-ball, you know, I feel like we mentioned that particular aspect of Devin Booker and Zach Levine's development, <laughs> like at least every other podcast, maybe more, but, you know, it, I think it's helpful to go back to, because especially when you're talking about someone like Agbaji, he's proven that he can work in that role. That's not his best role, but, right. you know, that also means that him in that role, seeing the floor from the point guard spot, I think has been a huge boost to his playmaking as well. And, you know, if you're thinking of him primarily as an off-ball guy, you know, what he does with the ball in his hands isn't as important, but you also need to be able to rely on him to either shoot quickly or make a good decision with the ball. And the more opportunities you have with the ball in your hands, the better you're going to get at reading the floor. So, you know, yes, his off-the-dribble shooting numbers are a bit of a concern, but where I sort of come out on that is – if he continues to grow in that area, great. Maybe his ceiling is more than just a role player. If he doesn't, okay. You know, he's not going to be needed, I hope anyway, not going to be needed by his NBA team to be on the ball as much as he was at Kansas. And, you know, therefore the fact that he can do that in a pinch and has done that in a pinch before, I think is helpful to his developmental trajectory, even if that's not sort of the primary role that he's going to be playing at the NBA level. I, I think what you said there is so important as in terms of his decision making. And while even these, even though these on-ball reps haven't been super efficient, you know, on a nightly basis, they have given him, you know, it's like trial by fire where he's mm-hmm. learning constantly on a possession by possession basis. And that has improved his decision making so much over the years where he's not hesitating shooting off the catch. He knows, okay, I got, I'm putting this up right away or I'm attacking the closeout. Um, 
when he drives, he has better vision on those kickout passes. He's not a flashy playmaker by, by any means, but he's able to now, you know, make that that first read, first or second read out of the pick and roll, or find the shooter dropping down into the corner from the wing at, when he drives. And that kind of stuff is so important when projecting guys as NBA players because the windows become so much smaller in the NBA. And if you hesitate, you at, the entire offensive flow is killed because defenders are closing out quicker. They're rotating quicker. Everything is sharper and faster and more prompt in the NBA. And when you can get guys who know what they're doing from day one and can make that positive impact in a bunch of different areas, keep the ball moving, know when to shoot, know when to attack. That's so important. Absolutely. The confidence to not hesitate with the ball in his hands is huge for any prospect, really. And, you know, with Agbaji in particular, the fact that he's had these increased opportunities with the ball in his hands, not necessarily as someone who is going to be, you know, a Taron Armstrong kind of creative passer, but as someone who just makes the right reads, makes the right choices, and almost more importantly, makes them quickly doesn't, you know, sit and say, hmm, do I get into a triple thread? Do I jab step? Do I look to put up a mid-range jumper? Do I look to get around this guy? It's like, no, okay, ball in my hands, lane shut off, guys in the corner, pass the ball, keep it moving. You know, those kinds of things. If you have more confidence in your ability to make the right reads, then you're going to hesitate less in going for it. And that shortened hesitation period is huge for any NBA prospect because, as you said, if you hesitate, you get killed at the NBA level, and it's so much more prominent than it is in the college level. And a- a- as we really build up to the draft over these next couple months, the the 3&D label is going to get thrown around an egregious amount, and Igbaji is inevitably going to get labeled with that. But I, I think that do- is such a disservice to what he can do. And in the NBA now, yes, there are still 3&D wings, but it's kind of a dying breed because versatility is king. And the more versatile you are, the more impact you can make. I'm not saying that you have to be breaking guys down in isolation, but when defenders close out hard and run you off the line, what can you do? Can you attack the rim? Do you have the vision to make a kickout pass? Can you, or are you going to hesitate? Are you dead in the water? Igbaji is none of those things. He can attack the rim with his explosiveness and improved ball handling. He can find guys on kickouts. He can make the proper decision. So Yes, by the loosest definition, he is a three and D wing, but his ability to attack the rim, make the right decision, you know, just do a little bit of different things makes him so much more valuable than the guys who play good defense and can hit spot up threes. That's fascinating that you think of the three and D label that way. The way I see it is more that that's kind of his baseline. At this point, he's proven himself as a three point shooter and Beyond the last two seasons, he's proven himself as a defender basically since he entered college basketball. So I think at that point, the way I think about it is, all right, there are a number of players who get that label attached to them who are missing in one of those key areas. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that's Ivashi, right? And so therefore, I think that he meets that definition rather than just, oh, he shot 37% from three and I saw a couple good defensive possessions. Three and D guy, tossed the label on or oh, he's 6'6", six, six, and I've seen him knock down a through three-pointers, and he got a cool steal that one time. Great, 3 and D prospect, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that label getting thrown around a lot, I don't think diminishes the fact that there are some players who truly do meet that label. And for those players, I think it's important that, you know, they're able to do both of those things. But 
I think it's more that that's kind of the baseline for Ibaji. Whereas, you know, with some of these other players, it's like, okay, if he can just get the defense up to a decent level, if he can just improve that shot a little bit with Ibaji, that's where you're starting, right? That's the starting point. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, what else does he do beyond that? And the answer is he's gotten much better at doing things beyond that this season. And really, I mean, especially given his proficiency as a cutter, he wasn't just a pure three-point shooter, right? It's not like that was all he was doing. But, you know, that's kind of the baseline for him. And then the question, I think, is what else he can do beyond that. But that is really interesting that you sort of view the 3 and D label that way for Ibaji, because the way I see it is that I think it just gets thrown around more often than it should. But for the yes. players that it actually does apply to, I think it's a really important facet of their skill set, regardless of what else they can do. Yeah, and I guess my broader point was that that label, kind of like you said, just encompasses so many pro- more players than it probably should. And yes, Igbaje, I think, fits into that. But just to just say he's a 3 and D guy, I think, diminishes what like the extra things he does. So sure. I, I'm not clever enough to come up with a more creative title for it. Um, I think I've seen 3 and D plus kind of thrown out. Um, but that feels lame and kind of lazy just throwing a plus on the end of things. Shout out Disney plus. Um, but... <laughs> So it's yes, he is that I agree that that's kind of his baseline. I think worst case scenario, that's who he will be in the NBA. But the improvements he's made with his ball handling, his at room finishing, his decision making, passing, just all that stuff, I think elevates him into kind of like an upper tier of that really broad three and D label. I mean, also D pluses are not exactly what you want to associate with college players, right? That's kind of not great (laughs) for the whole graduation thing. School first. Well, I mean, he's a senior who's graduating. So, you know, unlike Ben Simmons, he probably actually did attend at least some of his classes. And and, and give, given his work rate, it, it would not surprise me. There you go. Anyway, moving right along from that. So something that I did want to sort of circle back to is in terms of his off-ball scoring, something that you brought up that I think is really key is how good he is at relocating. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how the fact that he's had the ball in his hands a lot more at Kansas than maybe he would at the NBA doesn't give him as many opportunities to, you know, really do what he's best at. But I mean, relocation threes in the NBA are huge, especially in the last 10 seasons or so of the three point revolution, right? And if you're a primary ball handler, you're not going to have as many opportunities to relocate unless you're pulling the Steph Curry thing. But, you know, I'm not going to call Ochai Steph Curry or anything, but the fact that he's so good at relocating and using off-ball screens to get himself open from three-point range is going to be, if not the primary part of his role at the NBA, certainly a huge part of it. Yeah, and I, I think that's where, you know, the increased on-ball reps have helped him as an off-ball scorer too because he's, you know, with the ball in his hands, he's recognizing these open spaces on the floor where shooters should be. And when you don't have the ball in your hands and you see your teammate attacking, you know, in the back of your mind, subconsciously, it's, it's something clicks and say, okay, I, I need to sink down into the corner so he can hit me with this baseline skip pass, or I need to lift out to the top of the key. So my center can pass, can find me out of the double team. Um, you know, it's stuff like that where the, you know, the, the on-ball reps bleed into his off-ball ability. And it, it's just, a f- you know, further example of, his ever evolving kind of floor awareness and basketball IQ, because the the amount of spacing that he's going to experience in the NBA is going to be so much different 
than what he has at, at Kansas and those opportunities to sink into the corner, find those open pockets on the wing or just cut when defenders are keyed in, keyed in on his, his primary ball handler. That's going to be so important because he can hit those relocation threes. He can finish at the rim off a back cut or a backdoor lob. So it, it's being able to find those, not, not just find those open pockets of space, but then really punish the defense when he does so. That's an excellent point, and I'm so glad you made it. What we've been talking about so far in terms of how his on-ball reps have sort of helped him have mainly been in terms of how it helps him as an on-ball player, right? You know, how it helps his ability to see the floor as a passer, how it helps his ability to just generally understand where his teammates are going to be at any given time. But, you know, the flip side of that that you mentioned is they bleed into each other. You know, his better understanding of the floor means he's going to better understand where he should be. And that comes into play when he's off ball and that comes into play when he's on ball. And, you know, the flip side of that as well is, you know, defensive understanding as well. If, you know, positioning is something that helps on both ends of the floor, right. And something that we've talked about, particularly with Kendall Brown in terms of how is he such a good cutter and can't defend cuts to save his life. You know, you think that those kinds of things would have synergy, but it's even clearer, I think, to see in the example that you just pointed out of his understanding of where he needs to be, off ball is helped tremendously by his understanding of where he needs his teammates to be when he's on the ball. Yeah. And I, w- when you watch a Kansas game, it, I think it's a really fun to kind of watch him and Christian Braun or Christian Brown play off each other because they assist each other so much of the time. And a lot of it wow. is relocation threes off of the other one's drive. And that, that, that kind of synergy and chemistry between the two is really impressive. And the fact that he's, you know, already showing this ability to relocate consistently and then attack closeouts or relocate and shoot immediately or drive and find his teammate and know exactly where he is, I think is really encouraging for, you know, that future chemistry and movement and unselfishness that will make an immediate impact in the NBA. There are two things that you sort of referenced there that I think are important to go into separately here. And the one is, you know, With Brown, you're talking about a two-man game, right? The two of them Mm -hmm. working together, finding ways to, you know, work off the other, get the other open, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also sort of the element of, you know, rather than just a simple two-man game of just the wider five-on-five setting in the sense that if Ibaji is not going to be involved in the primary action, you know, either as ball handler or as the presumed scorer, you know, it's still important for him to understand beyond sort of that two-man game setup just sort of understand where he should be on the floor in five by five as well. And I think that's going to be more important for him at the NBA level because he's going to be less of an emphasis on offense or put it this way. If he's more of an emphasis on offense at the NBA level than he is at Kansas, then he's going to have done even better than we both anticipated. And we've both been quite high on him for quite a long time. And I I will be thrilled if he does that. Um, But yeah, he'll be an all-star if he's exceeding his his current production. Um, But like, so to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying and what we talked about earlier with that lack of hesitation when he does get the ball, I think we also see that lack of hesitation with his off-ball movements where he's not a step late in relocating on the perimeter or cutting back door. Everything is so well-timed that, that, that he doesn't leave his ball handler out to dry. Like the, if his point guard or if his teammate is driving baseline and they need an outlet in the corner, he's already there. If, his center is getting double or triple teamed in the post because David McCormick is a monster of a human being. And that happens a lot. He's already relocated to the perimeter 
or the only spot on the perimeter where he can find him. So it's yes, the hesitation isn't there once he does get the ball, but he's already so proactive with his movements and relocations and cutting and all that kind of stuff that it just helps the offense flow at such a high level. I mean, this is also super basic, but I think it's just relevant as if you're always moving, it's harder to defend you than if you're standing still a lot of the time. Exactly. And I, again, we're, we're not comparing him to Steph Curry, but we see that with Steph so much where, you know, he is constantly moving around the floor. And yes, his shooting and his ball handling and his at-room finishing make him incredibly difficult to defend. But the fact that he never stops moving or running off screens or finding those open pockets is really what opens up so much of his, you know, scoring ability. So speaking of always going and always putting in the effort, let's talk about his defense for a bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the three and D side, there's also the D side of that. And I think the main reason that we didn't talk about it in the first portion of the podcast is just as we've sort of obliquely referenced throughout, I mean, that's been what he's always had is the incredible frame, 6'5", 210. I think what a 6'9", 6'10", wingspan? I don't don't remember off the top of my head, but... A plus wingspan yes. at 6'5", 210 pounds with incredible athleticism. And I mean, I guess the way that this relates back to offense as well is just that he's someone who can get in, get out in transition in a hurry. And, you know, he's, his steal numbers are a bit down from where they were last year, but that's a key way that you sort of generate possessions and get out in transition. It's not the only way, but, you know, that's a part of his defensive play as well. But Really, the main thing to note there is he just moves his feet incredibly well on the perimeter, and he's an exceptional athlete. And the rest of his game has sort of grown around that, but defense has always been the one thing that both of us were quite confident would be able to translate to the NBA level. Yeah, and I I have seen some arguments about his defense falling off and that he's not that good of a defender and that he's overrated. I think that's kind of overblown and pretty absurd um, and really ignoring a lot of the context of what he's asked to do on every single possession on both ends of the floor. So I think in a lesser offensive role, I think we're going to see that on ball defense really pick up again to, you know, the, the levels that we've seen in previous seasons. But I think a really good way to kind of gauge him as a defender is to watch him off ball and, he is so smart and effective and impactful off ball that he, he really is that, that team's defensive floor general. Cause Dewan Harris is the, the nightmare point of attack defender who's creating chaos for the ball handler. But Igbaji is the guy conducting everything behind him and he's communicating stuff. He's making those early tags and rotations and hedging. He's doing all of that stuff that, really shows that he knows exactly what's going on. And the fact that his on ball has dropped a little bit, all that tells me is that he's a little tired or kind of learning how to conserve and redistribute his energy for where it's needed and maybe more important areas. So I think this year as a defender, I kind of view him as like a Robert Clinton where the on ball isn't necessarily where you want it, I feel like the nature of the discussion on this vacillates between never talking about this and talking about it constantly. But, you know, I mean, players have a finite amount of energy. You can't spend 48 minutes sprinting from one end of the floor to the other at full tilt. So, yes, I think it's reasonable to assume that maybe the slight decline in his on-ball defense is due to him expending a lot more energy on the other end of the floor. And 
furthermore, I mean, you're talking about a drop-off, but I don't think he's gotten to the point where he's below being a really, really good on-ball defender, right? It's just he is at the point where he's such a spectacular off-ball defender and has grown so much as a scoring threat that, oh, his on-ball defense isn't as sharp as it's been in years past. Maybe, but it's still really good. And saying that it's fallen off a little bit ignores how high you were starting from. Yeah, and... uh you know, to, to kind of further back up. I I think he's really one of these guys to get a really good gauge of his defense. You you can't look at the numbers because so much of what he does is preventative where he's doing stuff before it happens. He's, you know, tagging the roller. So that pass isn't even there. And as an off ball defender, I think he's a little more conservative. So those steel numbers aren't going to be outlandish. They're not going to be Tari Eason, you know, almost a five steal rate because Tari Eason is constantly jumping passing lanes and doing all that kind of stuff. Whereas Igbaji is making sure that he's keeping guys in front of him and he's denying either post-entry passes or passes to cutters or those skip passes. He's making sure that things don't happen instead of trying to force and make things happen for himself. That's a great point. And admittedly, I need to do better at this kind of defensive evaluation in the sense that, you know, the box score numbers are one thing, but to understand just how effective he is off ball, you just have to watch him. Yeah. And, you know, that's something where the box score numbers are easier to see. And especially with steal rate, which translates from college to the NBA better than any other box score stat, you know, it's easy to think, okay, he gets a lot of steals, which means he'll get a decent number of transition opportunities, boost for his offense as well as his defense. And odds are that's going to translate, right? But Mm -hmm. with the subtler things, like you're mentioning, you know, maybe it shows up in things like, say, the fact that he's in the 85th percentile on synergy overall as a defender. But, you know, even that is still, those kinds of stats are still not perfect, certainly in terms of evaluating defensive prowess. But I think it's a better signal for the impact he has on the defensive end than just looking at the pure steal and block numbers, especially since those have gone down since last year. Yeah, and I I always struggle with like the the advanced defensive numbers, at least in college. I, I I get that steal and block rates tend to translate pretty pretty well, and uh, um I, I get that, but I I think so much of that still is dictated by the team's style of defensive play. And you know I'm not picking on, or at least not trying to pick on Tari Eason here, um because I I, I do think he is a, a solid defender, but that LSU defensive scheme is really high pressure and to create chaos and, you know, really force turnovers and get out and run. So I think that helps boost his steal numbers. Whereas I think Kansas is, you know, more fundamental and force bad shots and keep guys in front of you. Don't gamble, don't make mistakes. And that doesn't necessarily lead to a lot jumping passing lanes a ton and doing all that kind of stuff. But I think it does in the long run really help build that defensive awareness and decision-making and stuff that we can see translate to the NBA as well. So before we wrap things up here, just sort of broadly overall, what do you see as his NBA future, you know, in the first four years or so, and then sort of just generally for his career, I want to let you go first here because you've sort of alluded to think of him as a role player before, but I guess just elucidate that, you know, what do you think his NBA future looks like both early on and then sort of longer term? So early on, I think he's, you know, a, a quality top eight of a 
eight guy in a rotation. So second, third guy off the bench and a really, really good backup wing who's not going to hurt you really in any aspects of the game as his career progresses. Yeah, I, it wouldn't su- surprise me if he's like a really or if he's the third or fourth starter on a really good playoff team. Um, I, I don't think he's going to be part of a you know big three or anything like that. But I think he's one of these guys that winning teams are going to really go after and um, desire. Uh, he he reminds me a lot of Mikael Bridges. Not I don't, I don't think he'll be the defender that Bridges is because Bridges has. I, I think he's a lot longer. He has a lot more physical tools. I think he's a little better and kind of more impactful as a defender, but that kind of type of player who's really going to elevate a team on both ends of the floor, be really low maintenance, play his role to perfection and just do a lot of the little things on both ends of the floor that help produce um, winning basketball. So I think in his first couple years in the league that he's probably going to be, as you said, like a six through eight guy on the Mm -hmm. bench. I think his ultimate destiny is fifth starter on a playoff team because he's someone who you can rely on to guard the toughest wing slash guard assignment on the other team, who you can rely on to knock down three pointers at a decent rate, to cut to the rim effectively when he's left open, to make good decisions with the ball in his hands without being someone who you expect to generate a lot of his own offense as like a pull-up guy or step-back kind of guy. I think his ultimate NBA destiny is as the fourth or fifth starter on a really, really good team because he does so many of the quote-unquote little things exceptionally well, but he isn't quite at superstar level in any one particular area other than arguably has athleticism, which I think is not top 1%, but definitely among the elite athletes, even at the NBA level. But I think that where he ends up is just going to be as an incredibly valuable starting contributor, but not one of the big three, as you mentioned. I think poor man's Mikhail Bridges is an excellent kind of comp for him because maybe the defense doesn't ever get quite to the same level, but he just does so many good things when he's on the basketball court and fits with so many different kinds of players that I find it you know, especially also just the basic fact that he's 6'5", 210, right? He's not going to be the smallest guy on the court. He's not going to be the biggest guy on the court. I think there are so many different ways that he fits into and makes an NBA rotation better that I would be shocked if by year three or maybe even by year two, he hasn't sort of found his way into a starting lineup. And, you know, maybe even as we saw with Ayodesunmu this year, an injury happens at the wrong time and all of a sudden he's in the starting lineup and then he kind of never leaves. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about what he does so well. And if you put him on the Lakers right now, I think he immediately makes them a better team. Oh Um, yeah. (laughs) Like just, I I can't think of a rotation that he wouldn't fit into. Like, and we talked about it earlier, but he's, he can play wherever and he's proven over the years that he is willing to play whatever role is asked of him. Um, And honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up exceeding, you know, the, the quote unquote limitations of that we just put on him because of how much growth he's experienced these past couple of years. It's really been, I, I cannot emphasize enough how astounding his transformation as a player has been during his time at Kansas. Yeah. And this is something that I hammered home when we were talking about Alondis Williams, but on the one hand, yes, he's a 22 year old who you kind of assume maybe he's close to the end of his growth curve. On the other mm-hmm. hand, He has grown so much during the course of his college basketball career that 
it's hard to bet against him continuing to grow. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, if he could get to the point where he's a little bit more reliable at trading for himself, I mean, I don't think it's very likely at all, but if he can do that and produce at similar levels to what he's been producing this year. I mean, if he puts up the numbers that he put up at Kansas this year while playing the level of defense that he's played this year, that's an all-star caliber player. And Mm -hmm. I don't think he's likely to get to the all-star caliber player point, but if he really can develop as a sort of pull-up, step-back kind of, you know, jump shooter with the ball in his hand, self-created jump shots, maybe that's in the cards. I think it's extraordinarily unlikely, but given what we've seen from him so far, I also definitely don't want to bet against him continuing to develop. Yeah. And to, to even push back further on the age argument, um, I fo- just, I fully understand that there is typically more room for growth with 18 year olds compared to 21 year olds. I, I get, I understand how that works, but for so many of these young wings when we're like, Oh, well, what if he could develop into this? What if he could be that? And if only he adds a shot or if only his defense improves, Igbaji has already developed into that. He is already that. So I I know the unknown can be sexy and, and, you know, desirable because it's, Oh God, think of how grand this could be. Igbaji is already what we're hoping 95% of these prospects turn into. And given his, meteoric rise and growth as a player over the last three years. I'm not counting, counting him out of adding more to his skills on both ends of the floor. I'm not going to necessarily bet on it, but nothing would surprise me with him. All right. Anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap things up? Uh, no ceilings, big board drop today. Make sure to go check that out. Uh, also we're doing a bracket challenge over at no ceilings. Um, I think just go check out the Twitter page. It should be up there somewhere. Um, and winner of that will get some free merch. So yeah, just go, go check out, go follow everything. No ceilings. All right. He is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T M E T C A L F one, one. And as he mentioned, of course, at no ceilings NBA, as well as hashtag basketball and Canis Hoopus. Definitely do go and check out that Ibashi article that Tyler wrote. If you haven't already, it was an excellent article about one of my favorite players in college basketball. So it was exceptionally fun to read. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you should definitely check out that article. If you have been enjoying the podcast as well as this episode, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any kind of feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.